welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, film editor for InBetweenDrafts.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, here he is. He's a freelance writer, and I have him sprawled on the table, and I'm going to just add some electricity to wake him up. It's Will Ashton. Oh boy, yeah. I was curious if you were going to do anything regarding Zone of Interest, a, a very comedically friendly film. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I could get away with that, but yeah, we're back and... You know, this this is interesting. We're talking about poor things and the zone of interest. We're just doing two movies this time. You know, the grab bag stuff was fun where we did like seven to 14 movies in one thing because we had to catch up. But well, it's slowing down a little bit. I was going to say, I mean, through the grab bag, I think we were able to talk about most of the Best Picture nominees. Because at the time when we recorded or released most of them. I forget if the second one, the nominations had just come out or if they're going to come out or what have you. But I know, yeah, you had shared your thoughts on Zone of Interest and I believe a little bit on poor things, but I hadn't had a chance to see either yet. But we did have, you know, some pretty extensive conversations about some of the other films that were nominated for Best Picture that we didn't devote full episodes to, like Anatomy of a Fall, yeah. American Fiction, Maestro, what else? I think that's about I mean, it. We already covered Barbie back in. Yeah, that's what I mean. So Barbie, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. did. Past Lives, I believe we did already. Yes. Um, Killers Oppenheimer, of Moon, Killers of Oppenheimer, Yeah, yeah we, we really covered it. There, there are some th- things here and there for sure that we never got to. Boy in the Heron was another one, huh? But no, we're we're still kind of finishing out because we did, we did miss a whole month. We didn't do anything for, you know, Aquaman, for example. But in terms of January, it's been pretty light. There was Night Swim, which came out earlier in the month, which apparently was a movie that came out earlier in the month okay we have uh, right now the big movie is argyle i don't know maybe big and asterisk that came out over the weekend now i saw argyle i reviewed it on in between drafts now will ashton you have not seen it and the sense that i got from you in terms of like watching argyle was please don't make me watch this is that accurate initially yes but i i feel like now i'm like kind of I don't know. I've gone back Are you and morbidly forth. Morbidly like, curious. <laughs> I'm somewhere between morbidly curious because I do like. I didn't see his most recent one, but I do like Matthew Vaughn. Like I, I like most. of You his didn't films see the I've King's seen. Man. Yeah, I didn't see that one, but I've seen. Oh, I think I everything. Saw it. Did, we, did we not review it on the show? Okay. I think I've seen everything of his otherwise, except for obviously Argyle and Layer Cake. And I think mm. I've liked most, if not all, of those. So. Uh, yeah, I've liked all of his yeah. movies at least a little bit, but here's the thing. I think that since Kingsman, his movies have gotten a little bit worse each time because I liked Kingsman 2 a lot. I almost like Kingsman 2 more than the first one, but it doesn't. it's a sequel that doesn't quite top the first one, so I still kind of have to hold it in lower regard. See, I know other people were like, oh, Golden Circle wasn't very good. I, yeah. People don't love that movie compared to me. I, I had kind of mixed feelings, I think, about Golden Circle. I remember you and Maverick were really keen on it, and I was kind of more We enjoyed like, it, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I mean, there's stuff I like. I definitely think the first one's better. Even though that movie, I mean, I'm not going to say that one is aged, uh, you know, like a fine yeah. wine. But Sajani in both movies is pretty pronounced. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a Matthew Vaughn thing. Although it's kind of toned down. It's toned down a little bit in the his later movies. Or by later, I mean Argyle and King's Man. But yeah, neither of which, uh, yeah, they, they they aren't really getting that. They're not going to scratch that Von Itch if you've been having it since Golden Circle came out. I'm not going to lie to you. But it seems like Argyle is like Matthew Vaughn's The Lost City. 
<laughs> which I don't even know if that's really a thing. It's se, pretty but. similar to The Lost City. It's also pretty similar to Spy, Melissa McCarthy. Like the, the whole construct of like regular person getting caught up into the spy world. Lost City is the funny comparison because it's also an author and it's also like a, the real deal kind of tagging along. Although I guess Jason Statham did that in Spy too. So whatever. But no, with Argyle, we're not going to review it. But if you want to read my review, I was a lot kinder oh, really? to the movie than a lot of other to a lot than a lot of other critics. Oh, really? What? Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna see it tomorrow, so we could. You're gonna see it. it. Well, we could still do an episode. Let's just All do right. it on. Let's just do an episode. That I, I figured because the time has passed, you were like, well, we got to no, move I'll on. See it. The, the only thing is, so the, one of the reasons I even brought this up was because we still have the, we have to do our best movies of 2023. We still haven't done that episode, and I know a lot of people have been a little bit like, what's going on, guys? The big reason, of course, is that our scheduling is in a very strange place, <laughs> and it just it just turned out that way. We we just don't have as much time as we used to to just to record hey, like, when we're both free at the same time. I've been pretty flexible. It's just like, oh hey, you'll be like, hey, can you record? It's like I don't know. That's like one thirty in the morning. Can we do it tomorrow? It's like, well, tomorrow I'm going to Peru, so we'll have well, to do it on Friday of next week. Well, then, but no, but also it's both of us because because Will will be like, well, I haven't seen the movie even though it's been out for three weeks. And we said we would talk about it, but and then it'll be like, well, I'm sorry, I work every single day for the rest of my life, which I'm like, that's fair. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a lot of it's a lot of difficulty. I remember back in 2020, Will, we we couldn't wait to record. We would have recorded like a few times a week because we were so. I know. Yeah. Times yeah, have no. changed. Yeah. And yeah, here we are now. But we, we still have two movies we're excited to talk about. You know, who knows if we like the movie? I mean, people know that I like poor things. That's not I'm not even going to bother hiding that poor things, which is a movie that I've been waiting for you to see. I have been chomping at the bit to have a whole episode about this movie. But I think like it just took so long to get to your area. Yes and no. I mean, it was partly. Yeah. Compared to, I guess, San Francisco or at least. Parts the of coastal California. spots. Yeah, it, it came out a little bit later. It came out around, I think, Christmas in our area, maybe a little bit after Christmas. But yeah, I mean, part of it was that. And part of it was I was reading the book, which it kind of got delayed by because January got busier than I expected. But yeah, I, I finished the book and I watched the film. And it was the last one I needed to see to catch up on all the Best Picture nominees because I had seen a Zone of Interest only a few days prior. And uh, yeah, it was just and that one that one was really the one that got delayed was Zone of Interest. Like I I, I saw it as soon as I could, but it was just like it took forever to get to theaters outside of New York and L.A. for whatever reason. But it was I would say both of them were, were worth the wait. Well, we're about to talk about him now, and I'm, I'm excited because poor things. I mean, this is a movie that it definitely has stuck with me and. I, I don't know. I, as I say this, I don't know what I'm going to put as my number one movie of the year for our list. I've had a couple of number ones. I had a number one for the in-between drafts version of this, but it could change because I've been thinking a lot about the movies of 2023 and I haven't been watching or rewatching a lot of things. I've just been kind of sitting on it. But Poor Things is definitely up there, if not number one for me. But what is this movie? Okay, so folks folks who have listened to Cinemaholics for a while, they've heard the name Yorgos Lanthimos plenty of times. Uh, first movie we, we reviewed on Cinema Hawks from him was The Killing of a Sacred Deer. We went on to talk about The Favorite, and here we are now with his latest, I think, which is this, number five, number six of his movies? No, it's going to be more than that, huh? Yeah, I mean, this is like, I think it's seventh or eighth at this point. Yeah, he's he's done more, because I'm going back all the way to Dogtooth, but I'm forget. oh yeah, there's The Lobster, there's Alps. Well, yeah, but Dogtooth was like his third film, I think. It was his third, yeah, because his first movie was in 2001. 
and I don't remember what it was called, <laughs> but he, yeah, uh, he had a couple one, of movies. Before, yeah. Yeah. I forget the name of that one. Then I know it's like Kaneda is the second one. And then dog tooth, I believe is the third film. Then yeah, it's like Alps. And then he makes a transition to English language with the lobster and killing a sacred deer, as you mentioned. And yeah, I mean, he's just been sticking to uh, the English language films and it's very fascinating for me. I mean, cause I, I love the guy. I mean, whenever I saw dog tooth in high school or like at the end of high school, I just was like, I don't know who this guy is, but it just felt like a very revolutionary, just like seeing a pure pitch black, just absurdist comedy like that one done so precisely and viciously, but just very cuttingly and, and, and such a clever concept. I, I was just floored with it. And even though I didn't love Alps, I really did like the lobster and Kelly of sacred deer. And I, I, I do like the favorite. It does seem to me though, that like, when he when he made the transition to the favorite, because he didn't write that script, it didn't feel as precise to me as his like other things. But I still enjoyed it a good bit. I think the performances are obviously really great. It makes sense, you know, why Olivia Coleman and uh, Olivia Coleman won the Oscar, and and why yes. Emma Stone has become his like his new muse or whatever. But his uh, new darling, yeah, because he made another but, movie with her before he made Poor Things called Kinds of Kindness. And yeah, I didn't realize this. I was watching Emma Stone. She was uh, talking well, to, huh? Yeah, I mean, he's made that, and then he, there's like Bleat, which is like a short film, and and then short yeah, film. Kind yeah, of, that, that uh, already came out though. Sort of. It's like a festival thing, but yeah. And then there's Kind of Kindness, which come out this year, and then they apparently have like another one they're already working on. Uh, they they just been doing a whole bunch of stuff together. They're buddies. Uh, which yeah, even though I I did clearly like the. The favorite to me, I was think it was more enticed by poor things because it seemed like a kind of return to the the conceit of something like Dogtooth, like the you know the idea of like not only a comedy of manners of some sort, but this idea of like confinement versus personal like liberation and and all these different things are kind of done in a, in a broader you know kind of more expansive way with this film without sacrificing the eccentricities and idiosyncratic idiosyncratic qualities that that make Yorgos such a fascinating filmmaker. Yeah, and one of the reasons I even brought up Kinds of Kindness, not just because Emma Stone, but also because that is going to be the first movie that he has a writing credit on since The Killing of a Sacred Deer. So that, that is another, you know, kind of thing to look forward to there. Besides the short films. Yeah, he always writes those. But yeah, so so Poor Things kind of came out with, with a splash. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival it, it has received a lot of nominations for the Oscars and this movie looks like, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to, I think it won maybe the golden lion at Venice. If I'm, if I'm remembering that right, or maybe, um, yeah, I think, I think that's the case. Cause I think the favorite didn't win anything. Event, I don't know. My memory is not what it used to be, but anyway, yeah. So the movie is based on a book and I booked that 1992 book by Alistair Gray, the one that you've been reading, correct? And so hopefully you'll be able to speak in a moment about kind of how it compares and everything. So kind of funny that we're talking about poor things and the zone of interest. Both movies are based on books and I, I have read the zone of interest. So I'll be able to chime in on that later. And, uh, but in terms of this yeah. one, I, I went into poor things. I had no idea what this movie was. I knew I saw the poster. I knew Emma Stone was in it. I knew nothing else. I don't think I didn't know Willem Dafoe was in it. I didn't know Mark Ruffalo. I knew it was Emma Stone, Yorgos Lanthimos, 
and I saw like the poster, but it was the poster where you see her. She kind of looks like the Virgin Mary and there's other characters in the poster, but like, it's not like you have Willem Dafoe's like face next to her. So I didn't really, my, my impression of this movie was I didn't study the poster. I, it was always just like, this is an Emma Stone joint. And it's kind of funny because I think that if you go into it, not knowing anything about it, I think this movie runs the risk definitely alienating a lot of people because I had this feeling like in the first 10, 15 minutes where I was thinking to myself, Oh no, this is not, I I cannot hang with this movie for 142 minutes, two hours and 22 minutes. And, and the first like little chunk of this movie, you are, you don't, you're thrown into it. You don't really have a sense of what's going on unless you watch a trailer. You just sort of see, this kind of cold open that I won't give away. And we see Emma Stone playing, you know, a seems to be like a very childlike person who is just like throwing plates and being weird. And Willem Dafoe looks like a character out of like a David Cronenberg movie. And you're like, what is this? It's in black and white, but it doesn't take long. I don't think it's like 20 minutes, maybe earlier where the movie finally just goes, here we go this is what this is, or here's where it's really going to start. It almost feels like it's an extended prologue or something. And then as soon as the movie starts to kick off its real like thesis, and we start to see this character who's named Bella Baxter played by Emma Stone. And we learn more of like what's going on with her, which I don't want to give away here right now. Like maybe we give our general kind of take and then we can open up to like the more sort of minor. Here's what this movie is because I feel like there are things we need to talk about. But just generally speaking, for people who haven't seen it, it, it starts to just go into this zone of like dark whimsy. Oh, that, I thought you were going to say interest. Of interest? Because <laughs> you said do, goes a into zone the of zone. Interest. That, I mean, yeah. that would have been fun. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of double dipping. But no, it goes it goes into this like dark whimsy adventure that I didn't really see coming. And it was it's just uh, coming. And, and it's just one of those things where... I I I think the key to liking this movie is to a be prepared for it if you can <laughs> in terms maybe not the specifics like don't read up on it or anything but maybe just know that like you're in for something I I feel so bad for the people who saw this as like oh it was nominated for best picture Emma Stone I loved the help and then they watch this and it traumatizes them <laughs> and I think in my review too I even said like don't watch this movie it's great is kind of the tone of that whole review, which I I don't even know if you read the review at some point, so you can criticize my. I called it unfortunately brilliant, and and I think I had a few people reach out to me and they're like, John, the movie was great. You shouldn't have said in your review not to watch. I was like, well, the reverse psychology worked because you watched it, and here we are now. Well, I mean, I was down to see it no matter what. If anything, you being so high on it made me a cause for concern because I know you're not the biggest. Yorgos Lanthimos guy compared to me like I know you make it sound like I'm not you're making it sound like I'm not a fan which you're just saying that like in terms of a director I really I mean I liked the favorite a lot more than you did and I really liked yeah okay sorry I thought okay well you know I mean I I think we both I think we both have liked his movies I think you're just saying you like his movies a bit more than I do or you have like a sort of connection to them that's even deeper than mine not a competition I guess, yeah, I mean, to me, it feels like the favorite and poor things are, and I think you're going to brush back, 
put brush against this a little bit, but it feels like they're a little bit more conventional than his other films. <laughs> Not in terms of style, but like I know what you're trying to say because it's just funny because like to call a movie like Poor Things even conventional, even in that context, is just like oh my gosh. But it's more, I guess, maybe the better word would be approachable, like something like this. Like it, like I said, it is Accessible. tackling. Yeah, it is tackling similar concepts of his. Like, I think he kind of has the pet themes that he explores throughout a lot of his films. But to me, like, you know, going back, because I think Alps was the first one I saw in theaters. I saw Dogtooth at home. But Alps, I saw like a college film festival. And I remember the audience was like resisting it. Like, I was the only one that was really laughing in the back and like enjoying myself. But the audience felt kind of confused. I remember... I went to like local mall cineplex to see the lobster kind of similar vibe. Like a lot of, you know, white haired ladies are just like baffled throughout that whole movie. And to me, you know, just for me, like as soon as that movie starts with that lady driving up to the cow and just shooting in the face, I was just like, okay, this is 100%. I'm just loving. (laughs) It's so funny to me. And, you know, I, I think obviously killing of a sacred deer is not like as overtly funny as that, but it's still, has a very, very dry and dark sense of humor to it. And to me, like, I think the favorite and poor things was when I started to see kind of the turn, I guess, because. Well, uh, he yeah, he started to become more flash. He started to become flashier. He started to be a little bit more. He, he His movies became more of a spectacle. And it's not that the favorite is like a spectacle kind of movie in like the broader sense, but it's a spectacle spectacle in the sense that it has a lot of like musical energy to it like not musical like broadway musical but i mean musical just like in terms of you see characters kind of just really like expressing in outward ways whereas his other movies were like the characters tend to be a little bit more repressed and stayed yeah and more stiff. muted i guess more yeah you know kind of deadpan style yeah, too, yeah. like banshees of any sheeran not like that movie exactly but like uh, just i don't know a little bit more sort of like Quiet. Yeah, I mean, there's more like acidetic kind of quality to those earlier films, I guess, is what you're saying. But yeah, but I mean, he did take me, a turn. He did take a turn. I mean, the favorite, I think it was easier for I mean, obviously, I saw this with like totally different people each time. So it's not like the audience I'm seeing with is like progressing. But like, but, you know, I just I, I remember the favorite like was the first time I remember like the audience kind of being on board with a Yorgos Lanthimos movie outside of me. And like, that made you just kind of Maybe a little bit, but, you know, in the same way, like, you know, like when you like find like an indie band and it's like really cool. And then like they have like that one song that kind of takes off and then people are like, oh, I love blank blank. But it's like you love this one song. You don't love the cool catalog. Something similar happened to me with like Mumford and Sons, like their very early stuff. I was like, man, this is a cool sound. And then they just completely like went into what they are now, you know, like just completely went mainstream but in a way that was betrayed anyway i always preferred the avid brothers to be truthful i do um, too so you know high yeah. five there you go not that i think outside of them just being popular contemporary folk artists that they're all that similar but that's neither here nor there in any case yeah i mean to me though all that is to say i got to see dog tooth in a theater last year and that was a fascinating experience for me because it was the first time i had seen it you know since his career kind of took off, it was the first time I saw in a theater with an audience. And even still like that audience, like they felt very resistant to that film in a way that like is fascinating to me. Cause like, it took them like halfway through for them to figure out like, Oh, this is funny. Like I can laugh at this. Like it's not like the first half they're kind of like, huh, you know, like what is going on here? But then like, as soon as like the truly ridiculous stuff happens to that film, 
they're really like, oh, okay, I get this. Like even knowing, I guess, like the favorite and all the other films. But for me, Poor Things is the first time I felt like the audience I saw with, and granted, like you said, it was a later audience. Like it wasn't like the first run of people seeing it in my area, but like it was the first time it felt like they were, like as a collective, the audience was aware of what Yorgos is doing. It was just a really interesting experience for me in that way. And since like, you know, we're all kind of collectively laughing at this. We're all recognizing the comedy of it. And I think for me, it like the, the idea of you being like, oh, this is like, you know, like beyond reproach is really funny to me because it's like oh like to me it's like it's endearing that like oh he's finally made a film that like the the masses can enjoy in a way that like i feel like all his other films have been in one way or another a little bit harder to like dig into i mean i stand by that i think like you say a movie like this is accessible approachable i mean relative to like cinephiles yes i think the audience for this movie will watch and love it but in terms of like everyday people it's the kind of movie that's going to like really strike people in a very strange and like how could this be like this is disgusting this is horrible kind of way i've had that conversation with plenty of people of like the i can't believe like this movie does what it does and then you know i think that it's deeply fascinating i think that it's actually like an actually very interesting way to to do a character. I don't know how it compares to the the books or anything, but I think like the inherent sort of just what this movie is and the journey that Bella Baxter goes on, I think is just really fascinating. And it it uses all the absurdist and kind of gross stuff in a way that I think is very purposeful, very intentional, very interesting. So it's just weird. I don't want to give people the false impression of like, this is some kind of like, this is Barbie with like a slight more edge. Like, no, this is, this is a rough and tumble picture, right? Yeah. I mean, you say that, but I saw someone in their boxes, like Barbie for mentally ill people. And I'm like, that's, it's not wrong. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not far off the mark, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's not like, it's not a film that I can, you know, recommend to everybody, but it's a, it's the first one of his, outside the favorite that I feel like I can recommend to somebody who I don't know their tastes and feel like there's at least a 75% chance they're going to appreciate it. You know what I mean? Like it's like, but in any case, all that to say, to answer your earlier question, the book has kind of more of a fragmented style to it. It's kind of like comparable to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is funny because it's obviously borrowing mostly from Frankenstein. Yeah. But yeah, you kind of get like assorted letters and it's like mostly from McCandless point of view, who's played by Remy Yosef, but the movie's a lot more observant. I think it's like a lot, it's not as like subjective as the book is. And so I think for me, that kind of lends itself better to material because the way that Yorgos approaches things, it's like he's aware of the absurdity of it all. But in this case, it's weird to see, it's weird and endearing to see him being more empathetic. Cause like you said, like there's a coldness and a kind of, not I don't want to say fully cynical, but there is like a meanness to his other films that I think is less at the very least. It's more pointed here in a way that like I feel like he actually cares more for his characters in this film compared to like something like Dogtooth or Alps or even the lobster. Like it seems like he's, I guess, maybe a little less ironic this time around. He's he's kind of letting, as you were kind of alluding to his freak flag fly a little bit and, and kind of indulging his inner Terry Gilliam or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's not my favorite of his, I'd say, but I, I it's interesting to see how he's evolving as an artist. 
I, I this is definitely my favorite Yorgos Anthemos movie. I think that it does the best at balancing both sides of this guy as a director. The script is from Tony McNamara, and I think that uh, again, I can't compare it to the book, but between Emma Stone's performance here and just like just the general audacity of this movie, the way that it decides to it, its world feels and looks so insanely great to me like i just love the vibe and aesthetic of like victorian cyber steampunk or whatever it's going for production design in this movie is this world good like it's so so amazing like looking at each set and every little detail that went into it and the cyberpunk victorian thing you're talking about that's all in the film like there's no cyber it's victorian the book but none of that sci-fi element outside of the you know like the frankenstein conceit yeah, because the, there's like a weird science thing to it. And also Robbie Ryan is the cinematographer. I, I just watching this movie, it reminded me, I wrote this in my review, but it reminded me of Columbia from Bioshock Infinite, one of my favorite video games of all time. And one of one of the few video games that I think like nails like telling a story at, like as a video game, but also in a way that like appeals to people who like movies. But all that said, uh, I... Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't know any of that hoity-toity video game stuff. It's a little bit too highbrow for yeah, your, yeah, exactly, you know, yeah. meat and potatoes lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. But I would say this is more like an art house Frankenhooker, if you're familiar with that film. It's a good movie. I just watched that for the first time in October, fittingly. Not aware that I would make that comparison now, but good film. Good uh, trauma-produced uh, horror comedy. You know that, what bugs... Th- yeah. This is the thing that bugs me. People are like, N- every movie's the same. Nothing's new stuff like this comes out and it's like this is so original this is so different and it is making money i mean it's it's made back it's double its budget at this point and i think that that's great i it's been a a reasonable success for considering like what kind of movie this is and a lot of that is just i think the word of mouth people are like people love emma stone and i think people are hungry for something that is different but has something to it do we want to talk a little bit more about the the basic kind of vibe of this thing or in terms of more specific stuff i guess yeah i mean it is fascinating i guess for me and that this movie is coming out like around the time that people at least like online i have no idea if this is converse if these are conversations that people have in real life but like there is like a thing with it seems like with younger people i don't want to presume but it seems like at least the more outspoken like gen z people are a little bit more like chast about sexual representation and film and media and like there's like these conversations like it seems like every four to three months, somebody will go on to Twitter or threads or whatever is a social media platform at this point. Be like, why are sex scenes in movies like can that just happen <laughs> off screen? And then, you know, they get shut down. But like this movie feels like such a like middle finger to that kind of thing. It's just yeah. like, oh, why, now we get, why yeah. is there a sunset in this movie? Right. Like, what's the point of me feeling something, right. you know? Yeah. But no, but they treat like it's like sex is like going to the bathroom or something. It's like, no, I mean, there's a lot more to it, obviously. Yeah. And honestly, too, you say that, but I think the sex scenes in this movie also kind of speak to a well, some of them do. They also kind of speak to like a raw primal like this is actually like a very weird act when you take all the like emotion stuff out of it like the way that sex scenes are filmed in most movies tend to the the 
the job of the director, the actors, they're trying to make you, they're trying to put you in the scene. They're trying to match your emotion with the characters, right? So the music is usually like swelling and the angles and the movement. It's like, okay, you're trying to, you're trying to immerse the person in. You're trying to make them be like, this is great that the sex scene is happening, isn't it? Uh, it's, and it's titillating, of course. Like it's, it's trying to get that, that, you know, yeah. that reaction. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I mean, one reason I think I really pro- appreciate Yorgos is that like a lot of his films and definitely a lot of his comedy kind of comes down to like how just awkward people are about like yes communication and like interacting with people and expressing themselves and like he the deadpan thing you were alluding to earlier i think he uses that to sort of heighten just like how people or at least his characters aren't really able to find common links and like the, the the inherent weirdness of people trying to find connection or meaning through another person. And like you said, like I think sex is inherently one of the most primal human, but also just generally awkward things of life. And so, you know, I mean, it's obvious that he's going to like focus on that <laughs> in this film, but yeah, I, I agree. That it's like, it, it's not just like, it's not just to be titillating. It's, it's there with purpose. Right. And if anything, I think that it's, it's not there to be titillating at all. It's just, just, it, I think that its purpose is different and it's, it's a very, not that it's original, like plenty of other movies have kind of had similar vibes in terms of like, we're going to do a sex scene this way because, you know, and then, yeah, not all sex scenes are the same, but I just, there's something about this, the way that this movie uses them to really like get across two important things, which is that this is a character, Bella Baxter, who wants to like, she she wants what's happening to her. She's not a victim of the circumstances of her being in these sexual situations, despite certain things that get revealed. And it's something that she seeks out for herself. And it's something that is just is very like empowering to her. And at the same time, it, it's showing it in its sort of like, if you walked into the room as it was happening, this is how it would look. And it's honestly the first time, like these scenes and others, it's honestly the first time I feel like I've appreciated the weird like fish lens wide lens stuff more because he's actually doing it in a way that I think I don't know clicks for me better in terms of like well yeah like the way that everything is framed because it's always from her perspective I can I can my mind isn't being taken out of the movie so easily because I think I this is kind of how she sees the world like the weird distortions the warping and trying to see everything at the same time but you can't and it's just not something that I ever felt was as intentional and and thoughtful in other movies like this, especially the favorite where I thought it just didn't work at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I don't have as strong a negative or positive response to fisheye lens. If anything, this kind of remind me of like music videos from the nineties, but in this case to what you're kind of saying, I mean, I have heard some people kind of push back, I guess about how feminist or not this movie is. And I mean, there's, Something to be said, certainly, about like the inherent male gaze of someone like Yorgos Lanthimos. And, and and I don't think, obviously, this is a perfect female empowerment sort of film for different reasons that I don't think we need to completely get into because I think that's more spoilery. But, you know, as far as like something like this compared to like women talking, which I feel like is a lot more kind of didactic and like, I don't know, it just kind of feels like it's spelling out its themes in a way that this movie seems like it's actually kind of approaching them and exploring the messiness of it in a way that feels very cinematic and vibrant throughout just, I don't know. It seems more appealing to me despite whatever inherent flaws might be apparent in the approach. Uh, So I I do want to read a negative review, part of a review. This is from letterboxd. 
And Angelica Jade Bastion wrote her review for Vulture. And so this is what she put on Letterboxd. Oh. She gave it one star. Yeah, I meant to read the review. I, I know there was some chatter about this. I wanted to read it because I heard it's a really interesting perspective. This is what she said distilled down. I hated Poor Things and reviewed it for Vulture. That people are speaking of this as a rousing, weird feminist treatise is insane. How are y'all so easily fooled by such glaring misogyny? Except below, or excerpt below. Uh, there's a corroded spirit to the story, like it's intermittently possessed by an edgelord who's unaware most women menstruate, and an early wave white feminist who believes having sex is the most empowering thing a woman can do. For all the effing, which I can't say, there is no menstrual blood. In many ways, the film demonstrates the limits of the modern cis male auteur's vision for and about women, particularly their sexual selves. Watching it for any sort of feminist revelation is akin to craving the salty chill of the ocean and the spray of a wave upon your face and having to settle for resting your ear against a curling seashell, listening to only the echo of what you truly desire. Yeah, look, I don't agree with any of that. I, I, I think, it, you know, people are going to have their opinions, but I, I just think, yeah, no, like I, I think that certainly there are some things that can be lobbied at this movie in terms of, you know, it is directed by a man. It, it, it's written by a man, but I, I gotta say like, it's, it's not like women like are broadly consensus on this. If anything, I've seen women be like, I liked, I thought this was a better feminist message movie than Barbie. And I don't know, not everyone's gonna have the same opinion, but I don't know. What do you think of that? Cause I know you're, you said you haven't read the whole review yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was kind of alluding to that already. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say it's not like a perfect feminist text. And obviously, I'm not the but person to yeah, be that kind the... of thing doesn't exist, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like we're uh, holding it to a pretty high standard. Sure. I, I think, I don't know, to me, I didn't really look at specifically as feminist text. To me, it's it's more about confinement versus independence. As like I said, it feels like a companion piece of dog tooth. As far as not only being about a woman's liberation, though that's certainly key to it, it's about more just the ways in which society sort of just have inherent type of expectations for, in this case, Bella, and like you know, even someone as good-hearted or well-meaning as God Goodwin, Godwin, you know, I, I, despite the the messed up nature of what he did, I, I think there is like this idea of like only really Bella can find her path, and I think. Even compared to the book, I think it threads that needle a little bit better about establishing Bella as her own sort of independent, carefree personality. And I think the comedy probably is best exhibited in that case with some of the interactions between her and Mark Ruffalo, who we really haven't discussed yet. Just the, the idea of like the sort of hypocritical figure who wants to kind of feel like this, you know, liberty liberal minded like free spirited kind of guy but like it has these sort of like conceited ideas of what people in society and and particularly women should or could confine to and yeah i think for me it's it's you know it, it it's a film that i think is just kind of acknowledging the inherent silliness of societal pressures be it from men or women but yeah i think it's also you know as I was saying, it feels more empathetic to me than most other Yorgos Lanthimos films. It feels like it's one where he feels like more open hearted about the characters here uh, in a way that they're not as like test subjects to him, I guess, or like kind of like parables in these sort of twisted morality stories or whatever. But, you know, I'm not saying that that makes this, this film inherently better. I can see why some people would feel that way, but it is, I feel like a step forward 
for whatever he's going to do for the next phase of his career. Yeah. Yeah. I think, look, it's going to be one of those things where I'm not going to say somebody's wrong for pointing things out in a movie that doesn't click to them in terms of like, especially if you're that gender. Right. And, And I can only sort of say how I reacted to it, but I don't know. I think, I think my main thing with this movie is that in just in terms of like trying to be a message movie, it doesn't come across as a message movie, but it is one of those movies where I felt like as I was watching it, it was constantly like turning itself on its head. There's only like one section of it where I kind of was like, I don't know. A lot of the stuff that was happening on the ship, Jared Carmichael comes onto the scene and I don't think he's good Uh, in this. Yeah. I was going to say Gerard Carmichael was, I think, the thing that mainly holds this movie back. Cause I think his performance is genuinely kind of bad. Yeah. I don't know what happened there because everybody else around him is just, you know, totally killing it. But yeah. Yeah. I think that there's probably a better conversation to find out there that women are having about this movie because it's, it's so squarely supposed to be about like the female experience. And so we obviously can't comment directly on that, but I can just say that I watched, you know, watching the movie as a guy, I, I for sure had a reaction where I just, I don't know. I just, I kind of had that empathy, like you were saying, and it, it's one of those, it's those weird movies where I think, I think that's why I kind of was so hesitant about saying that it's a good movie, if anything, because I kept looking at like, like the things that this movie is doing is pretty messed up. And I think it is going to cause problems <laughs> for people who aren't who aren't expecting it. And it's going to dig up some things that people are like, this, I can't watch something like this. And so if you're that kind of person, like, yeah, you got to be a little careful with this movie. My thing has always been like, it's not that like this kind of thing shouldn't be in a movie. Like nothing is off. I don't think anything should necessarily be off limits. It's how you go about it, right? It's the same kind of thing with comedy. It, it's like uh, it, it, there was a, that thing that Anthony Jeselnik said once where he was like, it's about getting away with it. You know, you can tell a joke about anything. Nothing is off limits, but if the goal isn't to make someone laugh, you know, like if if you're just doing it to be an a-hole, then you're not getting away with it. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. And that's why, like, to me, that's not this kind of movie at all. It's not doing it to just kind of like provoke and shock you and make you go, Oh no, it, it's kind of doing it with a very in, uh, keen purpose. But I think some people are going to see that material in this movie and be like, no, maybe like nobody should have that in it. And then like, you're, it's inherently immoral, you know, to even comment on something like this. And I think that that's, I'm not, I'm not ascribing that to any particular critic or the, including the one we read, but, or any person who watches this movie, but yeah, that's just a sentiment I would look out for. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as I always say, at least I don't know if I've ever said this on the air, but uh, as in person, I, I am prone to say anything can be funny, but that doesn't mean that everything, you know, is inherently funny. You know, you got to find your way and you got to be thoughtful and, you know, kind of figure it out. But, you know, there is always going to be consequences if you, you know, aren't sensitive or thoughtful about it. But no, I think this movie's good. Like, I don't think I have to put any asterisks or any sort of barriers around it. I think it's a solid fun, you know, good time romp. at the movies. Yeah. Romp. And I, I, you know, I'm kind of surprised we haven't really talked about her performance, but I think Emma Stone, you know, does. Seem I said fully... it's probably her best one. Yeah. I don't know about that, but it's definitely her most committed, her most, you know, oh, I think it's easily her best performance. What's better than this performance. Give me a break. Mm, what are okay. we talking about? 
Hmm? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but it's yeah. this one. I, I'm putting my foot down. I, th- this is to me the best Emma Stone performance because it's the most fearless. It and it's her sure. just like I've just never seen her operate at such a pitch perfect level all the way through a movie. I mean, the movie just is I, her. the only reason I'm really holding off because I haven't watched The Curse yet, which I've heard is fantastic. And so that's a show. We're talking about movies anyway, but fine, fine. I would say if it, it look, if, I haven't seen the curse either, but if, if there was a performance that I even think kind of comes close to this, I would almost probably put out like maniac or something like that because I thought she was incredible in that. But uh, oh, anyway, sir, uh, we can't talk about a show. Well, if we're oh. opening it up, I'm just trying to match your, I'm just trying to sure. keep up with you. Like, yeah. you know, can uh, we, uh, talk Rotten about zone of, oh, okay. I want well, to talk yeah. About Cause this. we have still have zone of interest. Yeah. I want to talk about zone of interest. We can do the Rotten Tomatoes game later. Well, you want to do the Rotten Tomatoes game for poor things later? Yeah, we'll just do both of them at the same time. Ah, oh, fine. That's weird. Why not? I mean, I want to talk about Zone of Interest. You just can't wait. Even two minutes. All right. The Zone of Interest. New film from Jonathan Glazer. And this this one I saw back in late November, I want to say. I forget exactly. I mean, I saw it like early December. But Jonathan Glazer, well known for movies like Sexy Beast, Birth, and Under the Skin, which is the movie that Wilf oh. is amazing, that I hated and did not like at all. But this is his fourth movie, if I'm not mistaken. And it is it is also based on a book. I have the book actually behind me on the shelf here. And uh, that book is by Martin Amos, completely different from the movie. Not completely, completely different, but it, I, I won't even get into it because you know, into detail or anything. Oh, you have the, you have the book too from the library? There you go. It, it's, it's, it's just a different, same setting. And the same, I don't know, I can't even say the same construct, but anyway, uh, this well, movie also, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, I haven't read the source material for Under the Skin, as well as the book for his own adventures yet, but it seems like he kind of just kind of takes what he wants from like a source material and just kind of like shoes off the rest. Yeah, it's just kind of like, all right, well, this is really what I'm kind of focusing on here. And then he kind of, you know, takes Which I like. Spin on. I, I yeah. mean, I think it serves this movie great. I think a straight adaptation of the book would have been bad. I just don't think it, it would work in at all because I, I don't know. The book came out 2014. I just find it to be, it's, it's kind of trying to do the same thing, but in a way that only kind of works for a book. I don't think it would work for a movie, but like the whole, like, what is the point of this kind of question? But anyway, this is a co-production between the UK, Poland and the United States. So I'm just going to have to glide into this one. Cause this, this is a tough movie in some ways. And tough in the sense that it it has one glaring thing about it that I think has given people a lot of pause. This also premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this past year. It is, I'm trying to remember what it was nominated for. I know I got five, right? Best Picture, International. Director. um, Director, okay. I was like, Uh, director. Adapt the screenplay and think something else. Not Sandra Hewler. She didn't get any nominations for this or... Uh, Anatomy of the Fall, which I find what? No, she did get nominated for Anatomy of the Fall. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of a different. Maybe I'm thinking of a different awards thing, like BAFTAs or something. You goof! Don't didn't you hear the whole stuff about people complaining about Margot Robbie not getting nominated for Best Actress for for Barbie? I heard about that. Well, I remember people were talking more about Devine Joy and who else? Devine uh, Joy. Yeah, yeah. That's for supporting actress. Yeah, but people were just sort of saying that, like, oh, like these white. 
women are complaining about not oh. being nominated. We weren't Lily Gladstone, like, but we weren't like celebrating the actors of color, uh. women of color who got nominated in acting. So they were talking more generally. But yeah, Lily Gladstone was like one of the major ones. But anyway, the zone of interest. This movie takes place at during 1943 and around oh, Rudolf Hals. Rudolf Hals, the real-life commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp. So this takes place during the Holocaust, and well, during World War II and the Holocaust, obviously. And during this... Sorry, hold on one second. And the movie kind of follows... Like, we don't actually see the concentration camp, like, inside of it. We get, like, hints of it. We hear certain things. But the movie centers around the family of the leader of the concentration camp, Rudolf Haas, who is played by, bring it up here, uh, Christian Friedel. And it, this is the kind of movie where you have long scenes, a lot of wonders, and I've just sort of seen the day-to-day lives of a person, a man and his family who live so close to Auschwitz, literally like next to it, and the horrors of it but still live out this kind of privileged existence, this like thing that you would see out of like German propaganda, basically of like the ideal German life for, if you've watched any movies from the like propaganda movies from that time, it's kind of just that for a couple of hours. Like it, it really is. You're just sort of following along kind of a loose story. You know, the commandant is trying to like secure sort of his like, his rising prestige and like the kind of politics of his position with the Nazis. And a lot of this movie is just seeing Sandra Hewler's character, uh, Hedwig manage this household. At one point, her mother comes to stay with them and her mother is just sort of like, how do you live like this? And it is kind of like the first time the character like breaks through the facade she's created for herself. And, and just seeing these kids be completely desensitized to like one of the most like atrocious atrocities, you know, of that entire era, you know, and that's not to say like things like that don't still happen today, unfortunately, but you know, just the, the widespread killing, it's just the more, you know, of course, about the Holocaust, the most, the, the more sort of unrelentingly sick, you know, this movie will make you. The main criticism I've seen for this movie from a lot of folks is that it doesn't need to be 105 minutes. It doesn't need to be nearly two hours. That it it's a short film at best because it's trying to do the same thing over and over again. It's trying to pull the same trick over and over again. I think that's way off. I think that that is completely missing the point. If this movie was only 20 minutes, it'd be letting you off easy. The point of this movie is that you're not going to get it that fast. You're going to only get it if you have to sit through it. And that's not to say that it's hard to sit through the movie. I mean, it is, but like, it's it's a movie that every single scene, I think, is pinpoint accurate to what it's trying to say. It is trying to say a lot of things. One main thing about the Holocaust that I do think is pretty relevant and definitely something that particularly Americans and the Brits really should like kind of wake up to which is like y'all want fascism do you do you do you not get like how messed up fascism is because like we have to keep telling you this over and over again so i appreciate it on that level because i think people just kind of desensitize the idea of like ah dictator whatever who cares you know and it's like nah you know you, you don't you don't want that so yeah great movie one of my faves of the year and there's uh, yes there's plenty to talk about will i, I know you're chomping at the bit here we go 
Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me that like, you know, you were like, oh, you, you couldn't stop thinking about poor things, which I understand to some respect. But like, I saw this, like I said, a few days before I saw poor things. And I feel like this movie has just been on my brain since like, I, I'll, you know, I'll reflect on poor things. and I'll think fondly of it. But it's like, to me, this movie is on a whole other level. And yeah, I mean, to what you're saying, t- there's been a lot of obviously a lot of art depicting the Holocaust and the atrocities that come therein. And there's also been films that explore the rise of power, the the ways in which something like this can come about and, and the ways, unfortunately, that they can still be relevant today. But I think what this movie does in particular is it kind of finds a, a, a fine line between kind of exploring the inherent sort of complicity that comes with something like this, where it, it doesn't happen just overnight. Like it's, Stuff like this, it's not just a matter of like what you see in the concentration camps and, and the horrors that, that happen on a day-to-day basis, on a minute-by-minute basis in, in camps as, as horrible as Auschwitz. But just the ways in which people justify or make sense or just ignore the way uh, the, the, the grand scheme of things or in some cases the way that businesses will profit or corporations will profit off the suffering of others. And I think this movie, as you're suggesting, it's very stark. It's very, you know, sort of in your face in a way, but it's not like, you know, pointing the message right at the audience and like spilling, you know, like spoon feeding the audience. It's, it's showing, you know, it's, everything is very brightly lit. Everything is very, compose as you're suggesting it i think they filmed it on like multiple cameras like it almost has like a reality tv setup from what i'd heard like you know like you'll kind of like follow a character walking through the house and you kind of it's like i think all done from like a single shot i get in a sense of like single cut but you're kind of following from the different cameras and it has a sort of you know real-time feel but it has probably the most audacious style of any best picture nominee that I can think of since probably something like the tree of life in that it's not like a direct linear narrative. It's not like you're following, you know, like the, the Joseph Campbell, like character hero's journey sort of thing. It's just very, you know, just very kind of observant and, and poised and just ex- exploring the, the ways in which a family like this who seem, you know, in the broad, broad scheme of things, you know, a, a fairly mundane everyday well-to-do family, But, you know, when you live so close to such things and you hear the screams like kind of off in the distance, which I have to say, if you do see this movie, please see it in a theater with really great speakers because the sound design and the score of this movie, incredible. I mean, Mika Levy, I knew was going to do great work. They made another fantastic score with this. It's continued to rattle my brain, just like the themes of this movie throughout. But also just the ways that you just it's not like you just hear like you know, like a scream, like in the way like tar where like you see like Cape Blanchett in the forest, and you just hear something, you just you hear like the little like groans and and things throughout the distance. And it just like, you, you, it's almost like you can tune them out in a respect and you get in the mindset of the characters. And it's just really, really fascinating, incredible stuff. But also just the complicity of the characters in the sense of like, how aware is someone like Sandra Huller's character? Like, obviously, she knows what's happening. But like, how much is she, you know, willing to indulge this is this one of the things where she has kind of accepts it as part of her husband's work or is this something that she's directly even profiting or like something that she sees as an improvement on her life right that's the the main message right it's it's the banality of evil but it's the fact that people today like this is the takeaway the people today 
like horrific things are happening to people all over the world. And the point of this movie is that even if you were really, really close and you were next door to it happening, if it inconvenienced you, you would be fine with it happening. And it's saying that about a lot of people. Not, I'm not saying you, Will Ashton, or you know me, but you know, it, it's that kind of thing where like human beings are capable of that kind of compartmentalization, that kind of horrific, like sociopathic compartmentalization. But like you said, it doesn't happen overnight, but it is something that like that is so key. Because when people think about the the history of this and they think about like how could people have done this, look around. Like there are people who put up with and tolerate and are okay with or even support like horrific things happening to human beings, you know, to bring this to current events. Like there's debates happening right now with our border where an entire conglomerate of our political system wants to just shoot people down there, shoot human beings and execute them. You think that's, that's very different from like what we're talking about here. And so like, to me, like this is that kind of movie that's like more of a not even a wake up call. It's just sort of like, are you seriously like, how long have you been asleep kind of call? So yeah, it, it, it definitely rattles me in that sense. But even beyond that, I mean, a few years back, I think it was when a more came out. It's probably like 10 years ago or maybe more recently, maybe it was like 2016. Michael Haneke was doing like a round table discussion. He talked about, you know, like what responsibilities do films that depict the Holocaust have? especially like a film like this, like a narrative film that is meant to, in a broad sense, derive some sort of entertainment value or like some sort of, you know, expectations from an audience. Like it's not a documentary. It's not just a depiction in a, in a, you know, realistic way or like a very real way, I, I should say, of what's happening. If, in, is that something that is inherently morally wrong? And I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, the the person to explore that in depth. But I think this movie feels in some respects like a, a, an answer or a response to that sort of question in a sense of like it's it's not that it's like a boring film at least to me i find it's very very compelling but it's, it's it's a slow kind of sizzle kind of film where it's like you have to like you said i think if this was 20 minutes it would just feel like oh like that's why i need to kind of like warm up to it in a respect like i need to like sit with it to figure out where it's really going, what it's doing. And I guess you could explain it in, in a short amount of time, but it doesn't pack the same punch because you have to really just kind of process it in in the theater and you have to sit with it and you have to really, you know, understand the gravity of what's happening and, and all that. And, and and there's a, I guess you could do it in a more pat sort of way, but I think this film finds a fine line of exploring like the the enduring sort of, emphasis on the horrors of something like this that happens under a fascist dictatorship, but, but also not glorifying it in the sense of like gaining pure, you know, entertainment value or pure escapism, but also not like, you know, bashing the audience over the head and being like, why, why are you not doing something? Like, why are you doing it? It's still telling a compelling story. And I think that's such a fine, thin line to walk across. And I'm really, really impressed which I think laser for, I think in my view, at least finding that balance and, and doing it so well here. Yeah. I and mean, this is a movie I, I've never seen anything quite like this movie, which is I think notable in of it itself, finding a different way to depict the Holocaust, not different. Like I think there've been documentaries that have also sort of like used this method of like, we're not going to show the atrocity itself, but we're going to still deliver like in terms of like what happened. This this is from Seth. I thought this was interesting. He said, you could hear a pin drop in... A, what's wrong? 
I that, no, sorry. I, I'm not trying to take away from Seth. I just think it's really funny that you just like, oh, here's what Seth says. Like, who, Seth who? Like Seth Rogen? Who are you talking about? Well, we don't have a last name. <laughs> I know. <okay. laughs> <laughs> sorry. This is from Seth. Seth said, uh, you could hear a pin drop in a packed house. As soon as it was over, I sat in quiet, absolutely. I sat in quiet, absolute distraught. It made me feel genuinely sick. Nothing would have prepared me for this. We begin in darkness and end in total emotional torment. In a decade full of important films, I believe this is one of the most significant, if not the most. The reluctance to follow a conventional story is admirable. Each sequence develops and builds until it bursts at the end and broke me. So relentless and strong, yet full of creative flair and distinct direction. The best sound design in quite some time, dedicated to providing a permanent, horrific experiment experience. Glazer succeeds on all fronts by being not just a visionary director, but also one who can handle this with the utmost care and sincerity. Unlike prior films of this nature, not only do I think this is one of the best films of the decade so far, but one of the best for the century. Five stars. So I think Seth liked it a lot. I'm going to just go out there and say it. And, And it is very different from the book, you know, kind of what he's touching on there, like nothing could prepare you for this. Like reading the book's not going to really prepare you for this because the the book is sort of built on this kind of like love triangle thing that happens and the commandant isn't there. His wife is, it uses different names, fake names. And it's a little bit more of like, how could something like this happen? Like at Auschwitz, this kind of weird sort of like guy who works there who's kind of flirting with the wife of the guy who runs it meanwhile you know this horrific 20th century mass murder is happening so this movie i think to what we were talking about before completely like it's like nah you know we're still gonna follow that same ley line of yes this is sort of about like atrocity happening next door and you being trying to pretend like you're blissfully unaware of it or that it's just sort of like another day at the office and he's just going to sort of be like, nah, you, you don't need that stuff. You don't, you don't need like for, it works for the book. I'm sure some people would say, but for the movie, it has to be this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I just, I just, yeah, I, I found myself really, really compelled. And I, I still feel like I, I haven't fully grasped the, the full extent of the film. Like for instance, the, the dream sequences, I'm still kind of mulling those over. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I fully understand what they're saying, but it's one of those things where like, I just know and trust Glazer as a filmmaker at this point that I, I know there's deep logical meaning. I have like my interpretations. I just don't really know if, if they're exactly what he has in mind, but yeah, I just, it's just a, just a truly riveting film. And, and I hope people give it a shot. I mean, it seems like, I guess, it, you know, it, as much as it pained me to have a 24 delay the releases they did, it seems smart on their part to wait until the nominations came out. Cause like seeing this with a full audience, I feel like that that type of thing wouldn't have happened if it didn't get nominated for Best Picture and people were like, oh, you know, like, what is this? It's, it's I guess it would be harder for them to, to justify taking the leap that a film like this requires. But, yeah, I really do hope people check it out and give it a shot because I, I think, you know, it, 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 I feel like putting a label like important can sometimes tear people away because it feels like homework or something. But it does feel like an important film. And, and I don't think it feels, you know, too cumbersome i mean it is you do have to work with it in the sense of like you have to kind of sit and and linger with the film and figure out what's going to tell you and what you're going to process from it over the course of the story but i I think it's really worth the while if you if you invest yourself and give yourself to the film i just have one more reaction here i wanted to do one that was more mixed 
And I, I did come across more like negative ones and the negative ones I found kind of insufferable to be totally honest. Like there was one that was just like, this is anti-cinema. And I was like, all right, you just want, yeah, you just I want saw, attention. Come on. I saw there was one going around where it was somebody on Letterboxd was going like, why do we need a movie right now from the perspective of Nazis? And it's just like, it, it just seemed like the point of the film just totally went over their head in a way. It's just yeah. like. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> some, it's hard being 20. Okay, so this is from uh, Fran Hoffner. Fran said, I feel a sort of mounting frustration for this Fran. film the months since I've seen. Kind of overwhelmed on both sides of the discussion. The one half pointing to the now more than ever of it all. The other acknowledging that it is not unlike Laser to make a movie everyone says they hate up until they decide to love it. Well, I neither hate this more nor love it, but I do feel increasingly perturbed and annoyed by its presence in the landscape. Its ironies are too bare, its smugness too keen. I found it most evocative when it bumped up against itself. The scene in the river, the ensuing baths, the maid or whoever saying you live or something close to that. How true. The moment shot in night vision, the Levi score did sometimes make me feel like I might actively die while watching. That said, I don't know what either do for me in the context of the film, though I love the Levi work, Levi work in isolation. Still, the whole affair stays with me. I remember more of it than I realize when I think back on its events. I change my mind about the ending every day. So yeah, that's that one's like, you can tell that somebody who's like, certain elements of this movie just did not work for them. But at the same time, like other things just still kind of like last with it, which I totally get. And, and I think I've seen that go around that one line. It's ironies are too bare. That I have seen that kind of go around of just like that same, like it's repetitive. It, it's the same irony over and over again. But again, I, I just, I maintain that I think that it's, it's yeah. Like you kind of, I think if you only do that irony once or twice or three times, the message wouldn't have its full effect. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think the ending is really what, what fully wins me over. And not to say I wasn't with it throughout, but I think, Having the way it ties together in an ending, I, I truly find to be brilliant in a, in a way that I, I think is so unexpected, but also just profound. And it just it, it just fully gripped me in a way that I just was not anticipating. But also, it does kind of feel like the type of ending that like, I don't know where else it really could have gone unless it did like a Inglorious Bastards sort of like revisionist history sort of deal. But yeah, Fran's one of my favorite. Yeah, Fran's one of my favorite letterbox follows. I always really enjoy hearing her perspective, even if I don't fully agree with it. In this case, yeah, just I, I really just think this is such a, a worthwhile film to explore, and uh, I can see why people aren't gonna dig it. And uh, I think it should be noted that you know, you know, neither of us are Jewish, and I can certainly understand like if this is a film that you know it's just too much and and it, it's not something that you can sit with especially now during such a tumultuous time i i totally understand but i i really do think this is one that people should give the benefit of the doubt and explore are we going to do like a more lighthearted movie next week that isn't going to be so you know like all right look if you're <laughs> if you're a woman if you're jewish i mean like, how many uh, things do we have to put in front of argyle no like, man mm. if you're a cat or a spy. If you really like that scene <laughs> in Jurassic World where Bryce Dallas Howard ran in heels. Oh, boy. Just prepare yourself because she takes them off this time. Oh. And the camera lingers on that. <laughs> One last. I got, I got to read that. This is Olivia Craighead. who said, you would not believe how many people in my theater had giant tubs of popcorn for this one. Yeah, <laughs> the woman next a... to me had an ice cream bar. Would love to understand the thinking there. That's yeah, it's a wild. fast. 
to me, it's wild that like, I don't know about you, but this movie was only playing in two theaters near me, at least the time when it came out. And they're both, you know, multiplex, like not, it wasn't playing in any of the art house theaters for whatever reason. So it just, it's a truly wild experience. Cause like, I do think, like I said, like hearing this with pristine speakers, like with a full audience is a really incredible experience, but also like watching the trailer for Argyle and Bob Marley, just like before you see zone of interest is just a truly surreal sort of experience for a film like this. So yeah. Yeah. I saw it in the screener. So yeah, I didn't have that same kind of experience myself. But all right, uh, let's play the Rotten Tomatoes games. We are over time. We'll start with Zone of Interest since we just talked about it. So I feel like I don't want to put it off. But uh, all right, we'll ask him. We have 270 reviews counted. A lot of reviews for this movie. Just goes to show that it, it has been making the rounds. People have been watching this one. And, you know, it, at the same time, its box office is really low. It's only made 5.3 million so far. But I do think that that's going to keep on increasing. But yeah, so Rotten Tomatoes score, what do you think? It should be noted that I think the fact that there isn't a whole lot coming out in February and, and you know, at the end of January, I think we'll probably play in its favor as well, especially as we get closer to the Oscars. But Driveaway Dolls comes out pretty soon. That's Adam the end Webb of the month. Yeah, the comes end of out the next yeah. week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's hard to say because I could see this one being like an 86% as far as like most people like it or at least appreciating it, but not wanting to give it a good review, but I think it's actually going to be more like a 94%. I think most people, even if they're not like four out of four or five out of five, I think they're going to be like, this is a a substantial film that's worth seeing. Even if I didn't get as much as some other people or my colleagues got out of it. Yeah. Your thinking is correct, but you went up a little bit too high 92, but you were, you were in the right zone. Uh, What about audience score? We have a hundred plus verified ratings audiences i don't think are going to be as keen on this just because it is a a taxing film as we've kind of suggested and and i think if you're just a general moviegoer you know just not really prepared for this it could be in many respects a lot and maybe not what what most people would want when they go to the movies so i'm gonna say 67 percent it's a bit higher. So your thinking wasn't right for that one. It's okay. actually 80%. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense in the sense of like the people who probably are seeking us out have a general idea of what this is. So that makes more sense, I guess. So far, yeah. Okay. We don't have a cinema score, but we do have Letterboxd. We have 130,000 watches, which to me, okay, 130,000 logs, 5.3 million box office. Hmm. What's going on there? Because <laughs> I don't I think mean, that that's... Well, I know a lot of people watch this festival, but not that many. And I guess people are watching it on demand. Is that can you get this on demand right now? I mean, no, I I will say I don't know. I mean, sometimes I do kind of wonder, like, because there's not like a a secure way of like, like I could go on and say like, oh, I saw, you know, Venom three or whatever. Like I could I could log any film, you know, maybe some people just want to earn some uh, (laughs) some art cred and be like oh yeah i saw zone of interest you know mm. and all that i'm not guess i'm not saying all or even many people are, are falsely logging zone of interest but it does i do sometimes wonder when numbers like that are so inflated that it's like hmm i don't know yeah i'm with you there but okay so 130,000 watches what do you think the average rating is is it 3.4 3.4 is it higher it's much higher it's 4.1 oh wow okay cool yeah, you were pretty low on it, especially for that 92% Rotten Tomatoes. What uh, happened? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I just was concerned. I thought maybe audiences would be more critical. I don't know. 
No, I, I, your concern was misguided. I mean, time. you showed me like a like negative and, and mixed reviews on Letterboxd. You kind of skewed me to think that's more <laughs> mixed, you know. Well, I also read a five-star review that said this is one of the best movies of the century. <laughs> true, that's true. But okay, all right. And then let's finish up with Poor Things. Poor Things, 344 reviews, even more. And yeah, what do you think probably, the Rotten Tomatoes is for this one? Uh, that, that letterbox is probably more accurate, I'd say. But who knows? As far as the Rotten Tomatoes score, I'm going to say 96%. No, it's actually the same as the Zone of Interest, oh, 92 wow. huh. 92%. And that wild audience score, we have a 1,000 plus verified rating, 10 times more than the last one. Hmm. Well, I think it's going to be 89%. 79 for things. It's actually like really close to the zone of interest. Zone of interest is 9280. This is 9279. So it kind of worked out that we double featured this, didn't it? Yeah. Interesting. A little, yeah, zone of interesting. But all right. And then for cinema score, we do have one for poor things. What do you, what's your guess? B? No, A minus. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. People people look, took one look at poor things and they were like, I would be a poor thing if I didn't tell everybody about this movie. Um, okay, I don't know what I was doing there. Okay, so this one, 638,000 watches on Letterboxd. Okay, 68 million box office. At least we're we're in the zone of something there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but wait, what's what do you think the average rating is? Well, since more people have seen this one, it seems like it's probably going to be lower than Zone of Interest, but I'm going to say 3.5. Will Ashton, you funny guy. It's 4.2. Oh, wow. It's so similar to Zone of Interest. I didn't even realize that going into this, but because Zone of Interest was 4.1, Poor Things 4.2. They're like roughly like similar and the same in some ways. But yeah, no, very high. And uh, it's actually in the Letterboxd Top 250. It has the crown for number 198. So Poor Things, one of the few films, 2023, to, to make that. Pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. But all right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back soon. I guess we're going to talk about Argyle next. <laughs> Very similar to Zone of Interest and Poor Things, I'm sure. That's right. Uh, from the Internet of California, I'm John Agroni. And from the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. See you next time. Bye.